Welcome to the Agile Strategy Lab podcast, where we explore what it means to view your organization, your company, or your community through the lens of agility to create a strategy that works in a rapidly changing world. I'm Liz Nilsson, the Associate Director of the Lab at the University of North Alabama. Today's episode is number 34. Cast your mind back to the early part of 2020. If your organization is anything like the Agile Strategy Lab, you entered the year with a plan, a set of activities that you were going to carry out. You'd given thought to making sure you had the human and financial resources you needed. You'd probably picked some performance targets. And with the tailwind of rest from the December holidays, you started with enthusiasm. And then, well, most of us had to tear up some, if not all, of our plans and start from scratch. It probably never really did get back to that place of comfort for many of us, where we could plan out more than a few months, because it was just so unclear exactly what even the near future was going to look like. We're in a different place now, midway through 2021, and you may be cranking back up with budgets, timelines, Gantt charts, sticky notes, spreadsheets. You can plan again. Before you get too far down the road, take a listen to today's episode in which we dive into the idea of effectuation and specifically effectual innovation. Effectuation is a concept that comes from the world of entrepreneurship. At its core, it posits that a startup has to rely on a largely emergent strategy, tapping resources they already have and the networks they can partner with to navigate an unpredictable environment. Effectual innovation takes that concept and moves it into a larger organizational context and the need to constantly nurture innovation. Our guest is Padi O'Reilly. Padi is part of the faculty at University College Cork, as well as the Irish Management Institute, where his work includes research on innovation, as well as work with organizations trying to accelerate their innovation processes. His career has cycled through a number of innovation frameworks, but his most recent work touches on a very familiar theme to us all, the metaphor of a virus. I started my career as, as an engineer, an engineer in the, engineer, in the innovation space. So for the last 28 years, I've worked in sort of various roles with all within really the innovation sphere. Now at different stages, it was called different things. You know, sometimes it might've been product development, other times it might've been uh, uh, process re-engineering, which was you know, very, um, I suppose, um, uh, prevalent back in the nineties, um, up to more recently service design, uh, digital transformation, et cetera. But the, really the common team has been innovation. So when I look back and I look back into the 90s as, as an engineer, we were very much taught a process, a way of, of, of designing, a way of innovating. Um, and you've been hard pushed really to find the human element in it. You know, it was very much focused on really uh, amplifying the, the features of technology to create change. I suppose being a slow learner, uh, Liz, uh, probably the penny started drop that sometimes these um, projects weren't as successful as they could be or should be and very often the reason was that missing piece was was the again the human bit um, so uh, 
I, I would have then, I suppose, as part of a PhD at some stage, you know, looked at um, how you, you can manage innovation more effectively within organisations. What we started uh, really trying to figure out is how can we create these pockets of change within organisations? Uh, and essentially, that is what effectual innovation is. It's about creating local change, allowing that local change to then spread through contagion uh, as people move from that initiative out to others and as people start to move up through the uh, organization. Um, so I suppose that then raises the question, what is effectual innovation? And really what drives effectual innovation, Liz, is, is one very simple question, you know, what is the best possible future that we can create with the resources we currently have without any of us having to take on undue risk? At the moment, uh, I, I've been talking to people in the National Health uh, Service in the UK um, and it's really interesting what's happening there, uh, Liz, you know, that uh, depending on it's divided up into trust, you know, and depending on the trust you're in, the performance seems to have really been different in terms of responding to COVID. So one of the um, trusts I'm talking to really is where um, they have responded very effectively to COVID. And, and what happened was senior leaders realized very soon or very uh, quickly into the COVID epidemic that uh, there was decisions they had to make, but really the success of a response to COVID really uh, lay with the local teams providing care, much needed care, and adapting to the situation that was in, in unfolding in front of them. What's intriguing about this is the, the same individuals are very, um, I suppose, taken up with effectual innovation uh, because essentially it took something like COVID for senior leaders and maybe for people on the ground to develop the confidence to realize that we can innovate, we can change from the ground up. And in some cases, that change is far more effective from these very large innovation programs that are uh, pushed from the, the top down. Um, so in, in a way, it, it, it has taken a virus for some organizations to realize that this local decision making, this local innovation actually works and in some cases works uh, very effectively. So I think that's one point. The second one is um, uh, effectual innovation works in a way uh, uh, similar, though we talk about contagion. So when we get a local initiative going, um, it is about delivering a piece of value within that local initiative. But sometimes the bigger piece of value is by allowing people to work differently and they then bring in those new ways of practice out into other areas. So there's the local value, but there's also this higher level value, which happens uh, after the event by people bringing those ideas elsewhere. So again, you could say somewhat similar to, to a virus. Uh, there's probably two or three different patterns we, we'd seen. One is where there's maybe a senior leader that realizes we need to do things differently. And the innovation theater you know, these big uh, innovation efforts, you know, where we have maybe centers of excellence and we invite customers in just aren't working. They're not delivering the day-to-day -day value that will keep this business going 5, 10, 15 years in, in, into the future. They, they look great. Innovation theater looks great, but there, sometimes there isn't a substance behind it. So in those cases, and this is maybe one pattern, there's a senior leader willing to back this very local initiative. Now, 
what we do is we bootstrap that local initiative. We don't look for big budgets. In fact, we go the opposite. It's small teams, small targets, small steps that start to move now and we start to build that that trust to know. So that's one pattern. A second pattern we see, Liz, is where we go into the weeds. We don't necessarily have senior leadership buy-in yet, but we we possibly have maybe a budget for a certain type of project. And we say to ourselves, let's now do more than we are required to do in this project. Let's deliver, over-deliver what we're being asked to deliver, but let's do it under the cover maybe of this project. A third pattern, Liz, is we see it maybe, um, and I'm trying to think of examples, maybe the what was called the, the NASA renegades, they were called, you know, within NASA, I suppose the success of Apollo meant that um, uh, NASA uh, stayed sitting on the same sort of control center software and architecture for at least a good decade after this, the success of the Apollos. Um, and this wasn't necessarily the most resilient architecture that literally one issue could bring the whole thing down. And they started looking at this idea of clustering, clustering off the shelf servers, you know, that you could literally buy um, from some of the main manufacturers and you cluster them together to give resilience. Now, they had very little backing. In fact, at the start, they had no backing, but they decided in their own spare time. And when they felt they had something together, they then maybe started to slowly, um, I suppose, move the curtain back and allow people within NASA to see it and then got the support of the senior leader. Generally, Liz, is we don't start with the very big conversation. Actually, I'm going to rephrase that. The conversations are big in ambition, but we don't start with the very loud conversations. You might start locally with a far quieter conversation uh, with maybe a smaller group of people where you take you use the benefit of smallness uh, to be able to prove a concept grow a concept and then it starts to snowball or the contagion starts to click in there again I think uh, if you go into organizations you and you speak to senior leaders the senior leaders generally know those organizations need to transform. And in a way, uh, the success of those leaders are tied to the success of the transformation. But that's a big risk to know. Uh, it's a big uh, initiative, especially if your tenure isn't that secure or your tenure isn't that long. So it's interesting that senior leaders and the transformation are linked. The success of one contributes to the success of the other. I think it's the layer underneath is where the issue is that the middle managers very often, their their, uh, success depends on the transformation not being successful in some cases. Because if the transformation is successful, we know uh, traditionally that very often, uh, you know, the the value is proven by reducing maybe the bloat, the, the, that mid-rift in, in, in organizations. When we're talking about effectual innovation, Liz, we always talk about it as nearly an experiment. We're saying this, you can roll back. What we're doing here, we're doing something locally. We're doing it on a small scale to prove a concept that you can always roll back from. And in a way, it really starts to reduce the perceived risk of the transformation. So we very often, we, we talk up, you know, this idea of design big, that, that yeah, we do need to reach out for, for sort of, um, you know, we need to have big ambition. 
but actually that doesn't require big transformation. You know, large consultancies come in with, um, uh, in some case I've been in, in transformation effort, uh, efforts where there's been a few thousand consultants coming into an organization driving it. We argue against that. We say the transformation should start with our own people doing new things locally and proving your concepts there and then allowing it to contage through the organization. So we we purposely within uh, Effectual Innovation start as experiments, start locally, prove our concepts, avoid the battles. So we don't take on the battles. We say, look, we'll prove it here and it's up to others then to decide one way or another. And I think in a way that sort of reduces the perceived risk on the part of senior leaders, but also doesn't uh, uh, put us on a direct, uh, I suppose, um, uh, confrontation path with 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 um, with, with with others. Uh, the, uh, trying to remove that inertia, we, we call it the, ta- the the bureaucratic tax put on by that midrift, repurposing that tax and what we would have paid in that tax back into innovation, back into entrepreneurship within organisations. I suppose it's only in hindsight you realize that actually what we were doing in some of these cases was actually ahead of the curve. I assumed to know this is the way that made sense and every organization would be doing similar stuff. And also remember, this is before the Agile Manifesto ever appeared on our sort of uh, our screens or in the books in front of us. I think the Agile Manifesto was about 2001. So I'm talking about maybe about 1995 or so then. So like in, in those uh, uh, organizations, and there's one in particular, I won't name the actual company, but it was uh, a, a, an insurance company, um, uh, probably had, uh, I, I'm thinking something, uh, uh, it was at 1.8 million uh, members at the time, insured members, it was health insurance. Um, and I suppose you would think, based on the fact it sort of come from a very um, uh, sort of semi-state background, that it'd be very bureaucratic and in some ways it, it was um, uh, but what was what we were able to do is again under the cover of being asked as uh, I was in uh, assigned to the IT department at the time under the cover of, of projects uh, where traditionally those projects would have been about flinging stuff across walls or taking requirements, throwing them over the wall to maybe um, analysts, analysts throwing it over the wall to developers, developers throwing it over the wall to, to testers and eventually it made its way back into the, the business is what we decided to, to do as just as a group of people saying, okay, look, we can do it that way and we can deliver to a set of requirements and functionally it will do what we set out to do. But wouldn't it be a shame if we missed this opportunity to do a lot more? Because there was other uh, initiatives that had been pushed back over and over again for one reason or or, or another. Um, And what we also probably realized uh, at the time, Liz, is, is, you know, if you go into some organizations, the amount of disengagement, uh, the amount of people that are are like uh, some people refer to them zombie employees they they're in there in body but not in mind but we knew if we could engage the the sort of hearts and minds of 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 some of these stakeholders then we could do a lot more and it was essentially about inviting 
people that were already probably assigned to the project in one way or another into a space where we actually collaborated uh, in a very agile way about overshooting what we were already asked to do. Now, that, that project was thankfully a success, but what, we, what then happened was we essentially rolled that model out into future projects to the point of which you know, people that had never worked together now uh, were working together on successful projects, but other people were putting their hand up saying, I want some of what's over there. I want to be involved in, in those projects. Um, and, and essentially that coexisted with a very bureaucratic organization to tell uh, maybe the, the, what happened afterwards in terms of the story is there was a very large transformation effort uh, where unfortunately, again, people at the, a senior level decided to go with the safety or the perceived safety of a large consultancy come in. And again, bring absolutely uh, hundreds of consultants in that essentially just pushed, unfortunately pushed that uh, initiative out. But what was, uh, I suppose, very valuable for me was that I was able to bring that blueprint and then bring it into our, our organizations you know, through my career. In some organizations, you were able to adopt this approach. In others, probably less so. My experiences where you can adopt a far more um, a collaborative approach, open, transparent, you know, approach to innovation, it's far more likely to take hold and be successful. So I would say the organizations where we were able to uh, adopt a, a, a form of effectual innovation were more successful on the whole than those where you couldn't do it. And again, we've used this right up to very recently. I've been involved in the Connected Health project in, 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 uh, in, that involves IBM, um, uh, another different uh, insurer, um, uh, local uh, startup companies. And again, that was the approach we, we used. Uh, uh, we had funding, government funding to deliver uh, uh, initiative. But again, we sat down and said, yeah, we can deliver that. But what more could we deliver? Once we set that ambition, it was amazing the buy-in we got from the existing partners, um, the goodwill that we got from others that were willing to collaborate on that effort and on that initiative, sometimes with no financial return for them. Again, believing in the ambition, wanting to collaborate in an open, transparent way. Sometimes we think it, it always comes down to the money. Uh, I think the intrinsic motivation and the power of intrinsic motivation is just uh, massive that we've these people, none, none, none of us want to go into a, an organization and feel uh, we're not um, fully engaged. And yet the stats say 70, 80 percent of us are in organizations where we're not fully engaged. What is it? Something like 20 percent of us go into organizations where we believe our, where our opinion doesn't even matter in, in the area in which we're, we're working. Is it 10 percent? Uh, say, you know, that um, they have no input into key decisions in their own area. You know, this, this is absolutely untapped potential. What other uh, resource in the business would you leave unutilized to that level? So even from a cost-benefit point of view, it makes no sense. From a human point of view, it definitely doesn't make sense. We, uh, the 
uh, we're spending enough time you know in employment each day every week uh, for it not to matter or we feel it doesn't matter in in, in our lives or, or we feel others believe our input doesn't matter uh, again we have to reverse this you know it's 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 a, an absolute waste of of human potential really i think what has happened during COVID, and it happens a lot when we have a sort of a, a threat in front of us, you know, that uh, we, I suppose some of us run away from it, but a lot of us actually, uh, it, it, it causes a, a period of neuroplasticity where we actually grow and we, 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 we grow as a result of the challenge, you know, and we respond to the challenge and we start self-authoring, you know, in response to the, the challenge. And I think what has happened in our, in, during COVID is a lot of our employees have actually now cognitively outdeveloped the organisations in which they're uh, employed in. So the individuals have been growing cognitively at a, a faster pace than the organisation. Thanks for listening. You can connect with Paddy O'Reilly and his work on LinkedIn, where he's an active contributor and takes part in open virtual events. If you'd like to learn more about how the lab helps communities and organizations with innovation and transformation, check out our website at agilestrategylab.org. You can email us through the website. Just look for the Contact Us button. See you next time.